I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. As the country faces a crisis in race and justice, the cases we discuss today have helped bring our attention to some of the most significant injustices and important issues. But what can we actually do about it? This is Episode 19, Race and Crime in America. Megan, we have some new patrons. Actually, we have two former students. I saw that. So I'm excited about all of them. But the two former students, that was so cool. All right. So shout outs to special shout out to Megan Gelnick. Hi, Megan. I had Megan in intro when she was a freshman. I've had Megan in several of my classes and she is just such an outstanding student. And she's always just she was so positive. She always brought something special to my classroom. Uh, So thank you, Megan. Agreed. Thank you so much, Megan. And we have Rose. Rose Weston. I know. I saw Rose, too. Uh, I've had Rose also several times. And I can tell you that she is a serious academic and Rose was already at a at a graduate level at the undergraduate. And she elevated all of my classes as well. So these are two really accomplished students. Amazing. Thank you guys so much. Coming back to take care of their old professors. Right? So nice. Thank you, ladies. Rose had a question, I believe, right, Megan? So Rose did have a question, which related to my women in crime class. So she asked or she said that she didn't recall learning about the issues that female juveniles go through or the crimes they're likely to get involved with. So are their needs and crimes the same as adult women? Are female juveniles tried as adults at the same rate as male juveniles for the same crimes? And what kind of services and policies would need to be implemented to aid female juveniles who are offenders that differ from adult women? So multi-part question. I did briefly cover this, but I can tell you that historically females were tried for different types of offenses, more often for those status offenses where they were looked at as like bad girls breaking the rules. And that still holds true. They are now tried more for some of the crimes that males are, but they're also tried more for aggressive female crimes like, you know, historically they weren't tried for simple assaults, but yes, now they are. It's like zero tolerance. We're going to try you for the same things um, that we're going to try males as. So I would say females are still tried more often for status offenses. Is that also a function of a change in domestic violence laws? Yes, absolutely. So when it used to be, it's mandatory arrest for all parties now. And so that's why both adult females and juvenile females are tried more often for these offenses that historically they were never tried for. 
Are their needs different than males? Yes, because they do mirror the adult female population. And in the adult female population, in prisons and in the system, we know that they suffer much uh, more or more extensive physical, sexual abuse and mental health issues and often dependency issues. So there are definitely those same needs. Are they tried as often for adult crimes as males? No, but that's probably because there are also less of them. They're, you know, they are, they're not typically held uh, or they're not the typical offenders. Males are still perpetrating those more serious crimes more frequently. And finally, what kind of services and policies would need um, to aid female juveniles? That could be a whole class. That could be an absolute whole, whole class. I'm going to have to say that it's not going to be so much different than adult females. They really need strong mental health counseling and they probably need substance abuse counseling as well, strong education. So probably a lot of the same things that the adult females need, but it goes, you know, earlier prevention will help later on. So thank you for your question, Rose, and I hope we answered it. Thank you. I also want to say hello and thank you to Ali Brigante. From San Clemente. James says that's a dream town to live in. Sounds fabulous. And a thank you to Katie Price. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Katie. Uh, let's see. We have Jody Durr, who's in the Coast Guard. Oh, thank you so much for your service. Right? Thank you, Jody. And she also wrote in with a question. What led you to having an interest and choosing a career in criminology? And are there any cases you've studied that have always stuck with you? All right. Uh, I'll go first. So for me... I've just always been interested in psychology. I've always been interested in social justice issues. So I think for me, being interested in psychology and social justice issues, it just seemed like a natural fit to be interested in criminology. And I did study forensic psychology for a while. So that's kind of that bridge as well. Uh, I have a lot of cases that stick with me. For me, it's I would say it has to be death row exonerees, you know, specific cases. But in general, when people are wrongfully convicted, of course, that's the most egregious miscarriage of justice, but on top of that, to sentence someone to death for something they didn't do, it's just, I never stopped thinking about those cases. So I was interested in criminal law at a young age, actually very young age, from watching bad television with my mom, watching LA Law, and it stuck with me forever, but my interest just kind of morphed when I, after I worked in a criminal law firm, or I, I didn't work in a criminal law firm, I worked in a civil one, and I just wasn't that interested in becoming a lawyer. But I was interested in the field, so I kind of stuck with it and pursued my education and careers in the field of criminal justice. There are a million cases that have stuck with me. I, I obsess over John Bonet still all the time because I just need to know who did it. The brother. I, 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 seriously, I don't know, but uh, I do obsess over that one. Because we spent so much time on direct appeal, I am still obsessed with Melanie McGuire and finding out the actual truth of what happened. And very much obsessed as well with, or the one that sticks with me, Darlie Rudier, because I she's on death row and I, I really feel that she's innocent. So thank you for your question, Jody, and thank you for your service. And lastly, we have a fellow Jersey girl, Mary D. Thank you, Mary. Thanks, Mary. Mary had a question, right? Here's Mary's question. Since you are both immersed in the crime world as criminologist and creating crime content, does it ever get emotionally or mentally too much? Do you ever need to take a step back away from crime? I, in general, I don't need to because I think I am so passionate, uh, but there are certain cases that bother me. So we just covered Shanda Sharer and I had nightmares about Shanda and it really, truly bothered me, upset me. I, I pretty much was crying when I was writing that and I'm not a, you know, a crier sensitive. There are times where people will also talk to me about their crimes and how they feel about them and the genuine remorse they feel and how upset you could see what they've done to themselves and ruined their lives and the consequences they feel. And I do feel I do feel badly at times. So there are times for sure when I get emotional, but I would never step away from this passion. Yeah. So for me, creating the episodes, I can somehow distance myself from it. And I don't ever feel like I need to take a step away from it. However, working in prison, similar to what you were alluding to, there's been several times that I drive home from teaching inside crying because it's just you meet some of the kindest people who are probably going to die in prison. So yeah, just being in our criminal justice system, to me, that's the difficult part. So thank you so much to our new patrons. Today's episode is different. It is a special one for us in which we are going to tackle race and crime using cases, mostly focusing on females here because that is what we do on women in crime. 
But using these individual stories in this episode to illustrate some of the problems and some of the solutions of racism in our criminal justice system. Amy is particularly suited to lead this episode today, given that she teaches race and crime and other related courses. We've both received a number of emails and comments asking about this current crisis, though. And maybe, Amy, you can start by giving us sort of the background or a brief overview of the history of race in the U.S. system. Great. So before I get there, I just want to say that we'd like to use this episode as an opportunity to have a meaningful discussion on race and crime in America. Before we get to the cases, though, and discuss the things that we can practically do to try and improve the system, we'd like to touch briefly on the issues that have plagued the Black community historically. Because, Megan, as you know, this issue is not limited to the criminal justice system. Racism has been a systemic feature of American society since its inception. So when we talk about systemic racism, what we're talking about is racism that infects the very structure of our society. And really, that's present in all facets of our society. I think that's true, Amy. Um, Sorry, before you get into it, I think one of the things that when we lay the foundation in our classes is that we also try to start, even though we specialize in the criminal justice system, we try to start by laying the foundation and, and explaining how, like a sociological point of view, how, does, how is this present in the other social structures of our system? Yes, and I always say, really, you can't teach about the criminal justice system without addressing race. You can't. I can't imagine any criminologist does. So we know in education, we see a disparity. For example, school curriculum claims to be inclusive and representative. However, despite, of course, some positive changes, research shows us that the perspective is often white and middle class and tends to ignore historical and current power imbalances. And also not to mention the disproportionate way that black children are treated in school. What do you mean by that? Black children are, for example, three times more likely to be suspended. And not only are we suspending these children, we're suspending them for minor infractions that non-black children would not, they would not have the same punitive reactions to. Okay, thank you. We can also look to healthcare and housing discrimination. We could look to wealth and employment gaps as an example. Um, white families we know hold 90% of the nation's wealth. And the unemployment rate consistently is extremely higher for black people. So while we can spend several episodes talking about all of the disparities in all of these areas, of course, we're going to focus on our criminal justice system. The United States, in effect, operates two distinct criminal justice systems, one for wealthy people and another for poor people and people of color. Megan, have you read Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow? Of course I have it, but I have not read the whole thing yet. Okay, well, I'm sure you will be reading it. I always see it on your bookshelf, though. I know. (laughs) So I really encourage everyone to read this book. I make my students read it. I have made my students read this book since the book first came out because it is such an important read. It really focuses on systemic racism, arguing that it's embedded in our criminal justice system and, of course, other government policies. But it really has been around since the civil rights movement. And essentially, Michelle Alexander argues that, as the title suggests, mass incarceration really serves the same purpose as slavery once did and then Jim Crow laws did as well. Of course, the result has been millions of black Americans who are behind bars and denied the very rights that they fought so hard for during the civil rights movement. Thank you. I know that book's a great one. And I know that at the end of this episode, I think we have some other recommended readings and documentaries for people who are going to be interested in going further with this. Yes, we definitely do. But everyone, your homework is to first read The New Jim Crow. Got it. (laughs) Okay. All right. So as white Americans, I don't know about you, Megan, but I don't usually feel the need to worry about being monitored by the police. I've never really worried about that either, nope. but especially because yep. I was a probation officer, too. So I was on the yep. opposite end in some ways. But unfortunately, the day to day reality for black people is quite different. And we know this because we talk to our non-white students. And I love teaching race and crime because I love hearing the reality of everyday life from these students. We know black people are more likely to be stopped by the police than any other race. And we're talking both traffic stops and street stops. Police are also more likely to threaten non-white people and to use force. Now, we know that some police tactics are more discriminatory than others. For example, Megan, you know about stop and frisk, I'm sure. I do know about stop and frisk. Uh, That is when a police officer can stop someone who they are suspicious of 
looking dangerous and mm-hmm. maybe have committed a crime and they are allowed an outer clothing pat down, not a full on search, but an outer clothing pat down. Yeah. And just to extend on that, it's supposed to be non intrusive, but talk to any black person who has been at the other end of one of these stop and frisk. Uh, I don't think any of them will tell you that it is non intrusive. So, Megan, as we teach in our classes, right, Terry versus Ohio is when the Supreme Court said that individuals can be stopped based on reasonable suspicion. And as we know, that is extremely subjective. And that's when the issues come in. Right? The issue is subjective. Terry v. Ohio, just for people who know, was 1968. And it was an off-duty police officer who observed people who were actually casing a jewelry store and possessed weapons. And so, you know, he stopped them and he made kind of an, a frisk and he did find firearms. And the court said, OK, what he did wasn't technically a violation of Fourth Amendment. But I've heard I mean, this is hotly debated. And let me just also say that in my one of my books, I can't remember if it's the corrections or the intro to criminal justice one. I did a section on stop and frisk. And when I went to all these oral histories and narratives and I read some of the most devastating stop and frisks, you don't think much of it. You think it's no big deal until you read what some humiliation and actual physical harm people were subjected to. Yep. And when you look at how it affects juveniles and women, you know, it's we get into even more issues. So we know, Megan, that most practices are state specific. For our listeners who don't know about this, a lot of, you know, the state police have jurisdiction to decide how they want to operate. So I want to just take a moment and talk about stop and frisk in New York City. Thankfully, New York City has dramatically reduced their use of stop and frisk. But in 2010, which was really the peak of the city's use of this practice, Black residents in New York City were eight times more likely to be stopped by police than white residents and 11 times more likely to be frisked. So we know that this was being this was being used disproportionately. And we also know that the use of force was in 23 percent of stops of black people, but only 16 percent of stops of white people. So we had a time when there was no uh, there was no oversight on this either. Um, So the difference now is that, you know, when this went through the courts, by the way, it was litigated in one of the federal courts in which I worked in, in my days as a probation officer and worked for one of those judges. And now there is much stronger oversight over it, which if you agree with stop and frisk or you don't, at least there should always have been oversight over the policy to make sure it's operating appropriately. Yeah. And thankfully, we have come a long way with that. But we have many other issues we can turn our attention to. Sure. We've also heard of this term driving while black. Yes. People of color are three times as likely as whites to be searched when they are pulled over. And blacks are twice as likely as whites to be arrested when they are pulled over. When we talk about drug use, we know that whites and black use drugs at the same at the same rate. However, of course, they are treated very differently. And the pattern for this treatment of black males and females is very similar. But we know that, you know, since we're talking about females here, let's talk about a case. Have you heard of Dejeria Becton? I have heard of her. She was a young teenager who I know was a young teenager who was stopped improperly at a Mm -hmm. party. Maybe you could fill me in on the rest of the details. Yeah. So she was just 15 years old. She was at a pool party and she was arrested by the police in a violent episode in Texas. So what happened was the pool party probably got a little out of control. I mean, they're kids hanging out, having fun. Right. Some people were allegedly arguing and the police were called to the scene. And of course, they told the teenagers to disperse. And really, you could just see this video yourself. Thankfully, we have the ability to see a lot of this footage so you can go see it yourself. But what happened was she was leaving the party like she was told. And a white male officer grabbed her, dragged her on the ground by her hair and dragged her to the sidewalk. Other officers drew their weapons. And Megan, an officer, put his knee on her back. What does that remind you of? Right. We're seeing this play out again. I I remember this now, and I remember the video, and I think he actually put, I'm pretty sure he applied his whole weight, both knees, and I think she was a small girl. So both full knees on the back. I mean, and that's going to compress her breathing. Absolutely. So needless to say, you should never put your knees in someone's back or on their neck, right? We shouldn't even have to be saying that out loud. I think so. I think there's any policy, any physical um, use of force that is going to reduce or seriously constrict someone's ability to breathe should probably just be prohibited. Absolutely. Great. So DeGeria would end up suing the department and winning about $150,000 settlement. 
And more importantly, the police officer who held her down, he would resign. I would have liked to see maybe him face some charges, but... We probably weren't there yet, and it probably wasn't... It was not a great reflection and not strong policing, but it wasn't as serious as what we've seen, or obviously it wasn't fatal. And I'm going to guess that the uh, department offered him the option, but not really the option. You're resigning. Mm -hmm. And that's how they handled that one. Yeah. So I think here... Just to end out this section, let's just say, let's revise the use of force. Let's make our policies more sensible. Yeah, I think it was, uh, I was teaching about this in my policy class, and I think it was Las Vegas recently, a couple of years ago. They revised their policies to make them much clearer and to also take out some of the more harmful physical practices and I think that other departments are following and it's just it's a great time for almost all departments who are not, you know, up to date to revise their policies on use of force. That is definitely a practical implication here. So let's move on to arrest. Obviously, after contact with police, there may or may not be an arrest. But let's talk about what it looks like for black men and women. Black Americans are 27 percent of all individuals arrested in the United States. Now, that might not seem like a high number. However, that's double their share of the total population. Right, because the total population is 13 percent, correct? So it's correct. Okay, so I get it then. Yes. So it's disproportionate when you actually look at the numbers. We can't just talk about percentages without understanding the reference group they're coming from. Sure. So why is this happening? It's important to note where are the police hanging out, because if you are looking for it, you will find it. Megan, where do you see a bigger police presence in Newark, New Jersey or in Madison, New Jersey, where we teach? I have seen very little police presence in Madison. Yeah. So, yes, I see a disproportionate yes. police presence in Newark, which I pass by frequently. Yes. So the point here is the police are in areas that are disproportionately African-American. And that is, of course, feeding into why these numbers are so high. Sure. More than one in four people arrested for drug violations in 2015 were black. But when you look at who's actually using and purchasing drugs, the numbers are the same for white and black Americans. Right. I knew that, too. Blacks are 3.7 times more likely to be arrested for a marijuana possession as compared to whites. And again, their marijuana uses is comparable. So we don't even need to explain it. No. It's pretty clear what's going on here. The numbers are clear on this, I think, on this issue. Yep. So, Megan, I'm, I'm sure you have heard of Sandra Bland. I have heard of her. And once again, I don't know the full story on this one, but I suspect you do. Yeah, I actually think we might want to do an episode on just her case because it's so important. Okay. Just to give you uh, a brief view of what happened. She was a 28-year-old black woman, and she was found dead in a jail cell in 2015 in Texas. Okay. So what led to this? Well, she had been in jail for three days prior to her suicide. And the reason she was in jail is because she could not gather the bail money. And I'm going to tell you what her offense was. Okay. So I just want to say some people might argue that since she took her own life, the officers really bear no fault. But you really need to look beneath the surface here, because when you look at the video evidence, most of what Sandra took herself with her cell phone, it is clear that the arresting officer wrongfully arrested Sandra Bland. What started out as a minor traffic violation escalated into the officer forcefully removing Bland from her vehicle after a series of back and forth verbal exchanges And the officer demanded that she not record him with her phone. But thankfully, she did not comply and she kept recording. That's how we have all this evidence. He slammed her to the ground and then he handcuffed her face down. So the video evidence shows some heated words between the two, but absolutely no instance of Bland striking the officer. Yet Sandra Bland was held in county jail for three days on the charge of assaulting the officer. So some people say, of course, she did not die at the hands of the police. A lot of people wonder, should she have even been in jail in the first place? Wait, so she committed suicide after three days in jail. And she was, I'm sorry, you said she was incarcerated there waiting or being held. She couldn't pay bail, which we know is a common problem. But there was no actual sign of her raising a hand or I don't, sometimes like nothing. Okay. 
And of course, there's always going to be people that argue not everything was on camera. But I think there's enough evidence here to suggest a possible unlawful arrest. At the very least, this actually brings us to the next topic. Why was she not able? She wasn't able to afford bail. She's nonviolent. Why are we holding her in jail for three days? Well, I have to tell you, this is one of my main areas of research. And what I can tell you is that, well, first of all, the perversion of our system really is cash bail. And it's just a fact that people are stuck in jail, not necessarily because they're violent or they're a flight risk, but they're stuck in jail because they don't have the money to pay. For some people, $500 might as well be $5 million if they don't have the resources, just to be clear on that. Uh, bail also, when I've looked at all the factors that affect bail, you know, whether it's race, whether it's other factors, we'll see that um, black and Hispanic offendants are more likely almost always to be denied any form of bail. They usually have when they are granted bail, they're usually going to have a higher monetary bail set. And then they're more likely down the line to be detained because they can't, in fact, pay their bail. And what happens is a lot of times, unfortunately, uh, black defendants and uh, Latino defendants are assessed to be higher safety and flight risks because of, you know, they might have criminal records and there, there might be other factors that are usually related, honestly, to their socioeconomic disadvantages. And, and therefore, there is a perception of them that is really an unfair one. So what usually happens is that black Americans will wind up incarcerated in local jails. And this is pre-trial. At a rate, these numbers vary, just so you know, but it's going to be actually at a rate of two to four times that of non-Hispanic white defendants. What's the problem here? Well, A, the problem is that there's a disproportion, another, again, disproportionately holding minorities because they cannot afford to pay bail. But the other problem here really relates to what that does down the line. And what I mean is that there have been a lot of scholars and a lot of people who study sentencing but I had this great professor in when I was getting my PhD, Dr. McCoy, and she said, I don't know why they start with sentencing. That is at the very end of the process. Look at what pretrial does. So what pretrial does it, is it affects every single decision point down the line. And what that means is that if you are detained prior to trial, if you're held on bail, you are going to have increased odds of conviction, and you're actually going to be um, most likely or more likely to be sentenced to prison and receive longer sentences. So I I also want to add that when people are held before, you're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty, but you're essentially being held before you're convicted. But something else that goes along with this is if you're being detained, you're losing your job, you're, you know, you can't pay the bills, you are might be a you know, you're, you might lose family. It's the collateral consequences, just like we see upon reentry. We see upon people after they serve time in jail, even for a short of two days. If you have a job that you can't go to and you tell your bosses because you're in jail, there's a good chance they're not going to welcome you back with open arms. Absolutely true. So it's all the consequences of this. And now you know that, unfortunately, black Americans suffer this more so. So the policy implication here at the end is really get rid of cash bail. It's really unfair. And there are many other ways to ensure people come back to court. And there are tons of other conditions that you can also impose if you worry about their safety. Mm -hmm. And cash bail, I'm happy to say, Amy, uh, New Jersey and uh, many other states have reformed their bail. We're, we're in a second bail reform movement. So we are actually seeing progress in this area and I'm kind of proud to say that and see that. And I think you're going to see many other states mm -hmm. getting rid of or drastically limiting cash bail. So while you're talking about bail, I think it only makes sense to go into plea bargaining. Oh, my other so my other research topic. Uh, I, I like to study the process. So I look at bail. I look at plea bargaining and sentencing. So plea bargaining is really the hallmark of justice. Most people still think that there's a trial because of what we see on TV, but that's not true. Ninety five percent of cases will be settled via a plea bargain in which the defendant will be offered some type of deal, whether it's less charges or less time in exchange for pleading guilty. I interviewed a lot of people when I did my own research who told me 
I just pled guilty to get out of jail, just to get out of here. When we talk about plea bargaining, the, the two players here are the defense and the prosecution. And that's these are the main players in a criminal court case and, and the judge. But the judge used to hold a lot more power. And we're going to talk about why. What happens with the defense and the prosecution? You ever see the, you know, the scales of justice outside? They're supposed to be blind. And they're supposed to be kind of equal, right? Well, yeah. this is not how it plays out because most jurisdictions, they don't provide adequate funding for their indigent defense programs. And this is like your public defenders, because what happens is that most people in the system can't actually afford a lawyer. About 85 percent of the people who are in the system are considered indigent. And so you have public defenders with excessively high caseloads. They will always tell you how inundated they are. And sometimes they have limited experience and there's a high rate of burnout. And for anyone who's interested in this, uh, there's a great documentary, Gideon's Army, on it. I would totally encourage you to look at it, what the realities are of being a public defender. So for a point of example, in 2016, the states allocated about $1.8 million in funding to the indigent defense compared to 17 million categorized as prosecution and court initiatives. We're overfunding prosecution. If we wanted to make it a fair system whereby defendants have a fair right and so does the state, we would equal out the, the monetary distribution. In some states, the most senior defense attorney is paid 10 to 15,000 less than the most junior prosecutor. I know the disparities personally in what prosecutors and public defenders are paid and prosecutors are paid a lot more. Prosecutors are more likely to charge people of color with crimes that carry heavier sentences than their white counterparts. Federal prosecutors, for example, are likely to charge black Americans with offenses that carry a mandatory minimum sentence than their similarly situated white counterparts. What we see is a pattern, and the pattern also stems from what we're going to talk about, mandatory sentencing and giving prosecutors way, way, way too much power. But here's where I'd like to bring up a case example. Have you ever heard of, and this, this one is one that I love, have you ever heard, uh, Amy, of Regina Kelly? I think there was a movie about her. Is yes. that true? Yes, you're so good. Uh, and I think it's because I talk about it, but... I know, anyway. I think so. <laughs> the movie was American Violet, and I've shown it in several of my classes. I think it's about 10 or 11 years old now, so I probably have to find another one more current, but it's it's really great. It's about this woman, Regina Kelly, who lived in Hearn, Texas. And I think that's just north of Houston. I'm not sure how far, but a little bit north. And Regina was swept up into a raid of her housing project where she lived with her four children in the year 2000. She was the subject and this housing project was the subject of a major DEA bust. But the DEA there, first of all, they were busting, you know, disproportionately these types of housing projects. And they were working on, in this particular bust, information from a very unreliable confidential informant. Regina was arrested. She was held, obviously, because she could not make bail. And she was expected to plead guilty to a drug crime like most of her peers. Uh, her public defender came in and told her, take the deal. You'll get a good deal. You'll get out. It'll be quick. It'll be easy. But Regina really refused. She was really incensed by this. She claimed complete innocence, not only that she hadn't done anything, you know, too serious, but she said she was not involved whatsoever in selling drugs. And then she would not take a plea to anything that she did not do. So Regina was a holdout. While a lot of her peers were taking these pleas, she held out, she fought, she got the ACLU on her side. And she was actually successful in getting her charges dropped, although it took some time. But this also evolved as they learned about how unreliable the confidential informant was. But you also have to realize the confidential informant was also a black man who had pressure on him to deliver. So it's, you know, the systemic problem. So what happened to Regina? She won. Her charges were dropped. And Regina was successful in getting Texas law changed. And in what way? It was really in how they valued information from confidential informants. So that part was great. But the part that wasn't so great was that the DA, the district attorney at the time, was reelected again. And he was part of that, a huge part of the problem. And Regina said that she really felt like she had to leave because of the harassment from law enforcement. She didn't feel comfortable or safe anymore. But she was successful in getting some changes implemented. And she does a lot of talks and speeches. And, and she, you know, she's, very, she's a very powerful advocate here for reform. 
The policy implication, one of them, is to get rid of mandatory minimum sentencing. And that is basically where there is a mandatory sentence that must be served for specific crimes and no judge can depart from that. For example, used most frequently, drug laws. There's a 10-year minimum for most of the serious, felonious, uh, I shouldn't even say serious, felonious. There's a 10-year minimum sentence for a number of drug crimes, which means that if you are convicted of that, you're serving the 10 years and there's no option about it. It also means that the prosecutor has more power again. Prosecutor will say, if you don't plead guilty to something else, I'm going to charge you with a mandatory minimum crime. And when you're found guilty, you're serving these 10 years and no judge is going to be able to help you. Also want to point out that these mandatory minimums came during the war on crack and cocaine, and they are disproportionately leveraged at the black community and especially uh, at the time with crack users. Did you want to add something, Amy? Oh, I really want to emphasize that discretion going from the judge to the prosecutor is a very dangerous thing because judges' hands are tied. And we see lots of judges who had very who had a lot of issues with this because They would see a single mother who was living on the street, who was really trying to provide for her children, and they could not even take into consideration her individual circumstance. And I think some judges had a real issue with that. If you think about it, Amy, the judge is supposed to be the referee, the arbiter, the unbiased one, right? There are the defense and the prosecution are playing out against each other. So how can we put all the power in the one side who has a vested interest and take it away from the person who's supposed to referee those? It doesn't make any sense. And they have all the money. It doesn't make any logical sense. When it comes to sentencing, black males and females are also, I said it before, sentenced more harshly for crimes than their white counterparts, and especially when they commit a violent crime against a white victim. Which brings me to the case of Lena Baker. Lena was a black woman who began work as a maid for her white male employer, Ernest Knight, in 1944, and this was in Georgia. She was only employed there for about a year, but Lena was sexually assaulted by Knight on several occasions, and she was also held by him as a prisoner in the home, sometimes for days at a time. She reported also being beat by his son several times. And one night when she was trying to escape her rapist, Ernest pulled out a pistol, Lena grabbed it, and she shot him in self-defense. Lena immediately reported the incident to the police who subsequently arrested her for the murder. Lena was tried by an all-white male jury, and they convicted her of capital murder, for which she was convicted, sentenced to death, and electrocuted. However, later, years later, in 2005, Lena was granted a posthumous pardon, which means that she was pardoned for her crime after her death because they acknowledged that it was in self-defense. And there was also a finding at that time that the Board of Pardons at the time had the ability to commute her sentence and lower it instead of going for electrocution. But they went for the death penalty in this controversial case. Do you know about the Baldus study that was used in uh, the Supreme Court case, McCluskey versus Kemp? I know McCluskey, but um, what's the Baldus study? So this one analysis found that defendants accused of killing white victims were over four times more likely to receive the death penalty than defendants who were accused of killing black victims. So I think that case you just shared really highlights that disparity. You know what? I did know that. Thank you for sharing that, though. I forgot. And yeah, I think this case absolutely does. And now we're, we're going right down the line. And I think we're moving from sentencing probably to the correctional aspect, uh, sentencing for, to corrections and reentry. Amy, you want to take a, over a little bit here? Yeah. So we know that black adults are much more likely to be incarcerated than white adults. The number is close to six times more likely. And among youth, African-Americans are about four times as likely to be committed to a secure placement as whites. Does that mean like a juvenile detention center? Yeah, exactly. So that's including juvenile detention center or for those who are waived up to adult. Okay. So mass incarceration, of course, leads to mass reentry for those that are, I guess, lucky enough, so to speak, to eventually get out. About how many people return home from prison a year or let out a year? So something like I, I close think, to seven hundred thousand. Okay, yeah, I was going to say six fifty, but that's yeah. probably my number is dated. Thank you. The number is about two point three million people that are under the form of some sort of correctional facility, and I believe the number is about seven hundred thousand that are being released to society. 
So really, it would be great if we as a society really embrace these individuals and try to help them reenter society. However, unfortunately, we do not always do that. Mass incarceration, of course, then leads to mass reentry. And when an individual returns to society, there is what is known as collateral consequences, which are additional civil penalties that really attach to criminal convictions. So people with criminal records face a host of obstacles to re-enter society even after they have fully completed their term of incarceration or community supervision. Denied access to employment, certain licenses, not being able to access housing loans or student loans, housing discrimination. It's basically any obstacle that hinders an individual from being successful upon release. And we know that African-Americans are exposed to these collateral consequences at a higher rate. I remember, just so you know, in the movie American Violet, Regina realizes that's not who plays her, but she realizes that a lot of the people who are arrested and pled guilty quickly to get out are now no longer allowed to live in the housing development because that's one of the, the losses. If you plead guilty to a drug crime, you lose subsidized housing. They also could not access any more welfare benefits such as food stamps or Medicaid because that is also something else you lose as a result. And there are a number of other scholarship opportunities. There's there's just so many things that people do not realize once they plead guilty, they're going to lose later on. And this also becomes a catch-22, especially if you're on parole, because a lot of the conditions of your parole are simply not possible to meet. For example, you need somewhere to live. But if everyone that you have connection with lives in, say, public housing, in some states you can't live with them. You're basically shut out from a lot of employment opportunities, but a condition of your parole is to remain employed. You have to meet a curfew, but you might only be able to get employment in the night shift. So we can see this time and time again of situations where people simply cannot meet their conditions. I saw this just personally. I saw this over and over again as a federal probation officer. And I saw what people, the expectations were not aligned with what they could realistically accomplish. Even those who were trying so very hard to meet them, they still could not. And then we punish them for it. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that, you know, both men and women are facing these challenges, but I think that there are also, are there not some unique reentry challenges for women? There are. But before we get to that, I just wanted to say that there's a lot of research on this, but some studies say that one in three black men have a conviction on their record. So we're dealing with a large segment of the population. And when we're looking at the percentage of African-American men who are of voting age, over 7 percent cannot vote simply because they have a felony conviction on their record. And that's four times higher than white people. Haven't we talked about this issue and how it would have changed elections had this percentage or had this segment of the population been able to vote? Yep. There's a great study that talks about the likelihood that Gore would have been elected right. over a Bush if in Florida people with a felony conviction would have been able to vote. So, yeah, so there are some unique reentry challenges for women. Women are often mothers, caregivers, and heads of households. So once they're incarcerated, their children often become displaced and unfortunately often end up in foster care. And that's a whole other issue. A lot of times the income is desperately needed by their families, and that income is now lost when these women are incarcerated. Women also require certain gender-based services and treatment. Research shows that they often suffer from harsher social and economic circumstances as compared to males. And for both men and women, I want to also just point out that these issues are compounded because offenders are often returning to neighborhoods that are already facing economic disadvantages and lack opportunities. Going back to that cycle, that catch-22, it's really hard for an individual to try to survive after incarceration with all of these barriers. But there are things that we actually can do. So I think a great point right now is maybe we talk about some of the policy recommendations. We've been doing it as we go along, but... The causes of these racial disparities in the system, they're very complex and deeply rooted. However, the good news is that there are some things we can do to reduce both the existence and the effects of racial bias in the criminal justice system. It's not going to eliminate racism or it won't necessarily get to the whole root cause. But we do think that there are practical measures that can certainly improve the situation. And I would say one of those things is certainly at this point, it's time to end the war on drugs. 
the war on drugs cost a lot of money and incarcerated a lot of low-level offenders. It was disproportionately targeted at black Americans. And if we just scale back arrest at this point, which I think we're starting to do, and we could also invest in prevention and treatment and drug education, which would be a great thing at this point. And going hand in hand with that is to eliminate mandatory minimum sentences. I spent a lot of time on this before, but I just want to say judges should be allowed to come in here and adequately decide sentences and take the power back from the prosecutors. So that's another very, very practical outcome. We can reduce the use of cash bail, as I said before. We should only be detaining people if they pose a substantial flight risk or a substantial safety risk but not because they can't afford to post bail, right, Amy? So we should definitely be able to modify. And you know what? Again, good news here. There are states moving to do this. Yeah, I think that one of the issues when it comes to a lot of these is states have the authority in a lot of these areas. There's no federal guidelines and oversight, really. So we see some states that are doing a really good job in certain areas, such as cash bail, and some that aren't doing as good of a job. Something we touched on a little earlier is indigent defense services. So we need better funding and better oversight. Actually, I think federal government support would be best here because a lot of times local and state don't have the resources to better fund these defense agencies. But we need to address the shortcomings of the jurisdictions that are failing to meet the established guidelines such as reducing caseloads and having more professional training, more support and more funds for people that are trying to adequately defend these individuals. Oh, my gosh. Again, please watch Gideon's Army on this one, everyone. This this is a huge one. And I think one that is very topical at the moment. We need to develop and implement training to reduce racial bias, particularly in our criminal justice system. Obviously, there's going to be bias at every level of the criminal justice system. And unfortunately, a lot of this bias is implicit, which really just means that it's unconscious, right? It's when we attribute certain qualities to certain individuals without even realize that without even realizing we're doing it. So that differs from explicitly being biased where you you are outwardly being racist and biased and you realize you are implicit now- is Is this unconscious or subconscious? Unconscious. So implicit racial bias is the unconscious unconscious attribution. Yeah. You know, we see this at every level, obviously police, but it doesn't stop there. We see it with public defenders and prosecutors, jury members, judges, parole boards, corrections officers. So obviously it's really difficult to eliminate or completely eliminate racial bias at the individual level. But at least we can try to work with the leading scholars in the area of implicit bias to try to develop some training programs or at least some monitoring and, of course, accountability. Absolutely. We can go on and on talking about policies, but I think it might be best to end with addressing collateral consequences. We were just talking about that. But a lot of the limitations that we place on individuals after incarceration are actually counterproductive to effective reentry. And they that's really are. And that's why we know within three years, almost 70 percent of individuals are going to be rearrested because we're setting essentially setting them up to fail. States really they should start by just allowing full democratic participation of their citizens. In other yeah. words, regardless of conviction status, people should be able to vote because we know how important it is. If you're not voting, then you're getting certain people in office that are not doing the right thing, that don't have your community's best interests at heart. We need to obviously allow people to vote, but we also need to look into the employment restrictions, education, housing. We need to encourage reforms at the state level to help support people upon reentry and not hinder their success. And again, there's a practical thing you can do. Practically, you can ban the box. The question that asks, have you been convicted of a felony that usually discriminates against people? New Jersey's decided to ban that question. And this is another example of practical policy reform, things we can actually do. Exactly. But what can individuals do? Like an individual listening, we're talking about things at the policy level. Well, first of all, they can vote. Yep. And and really, you, what you really need to do is you need to take better accounting of certainly local politics and ask these questions. 
if you care about them, ask your elected representatives when they are running, how will they address mandatory minimums? Will they specifically end the war on drugs? Will they specifically abolish solitary confinement? Will they, you know, be very specific and get specific answers and vote for the people who are going to do vote for the people who are going to be closest in line with the reforms that you think will reduce bias? You know, we talked mostly about female examples, but as you all know, because of right now what's going on with the murder of George Floyd and other African-American men, we could have easily done this episode on males as well. But regardless, we know that racial disparities in our system have a profound impact on the lives of millions of people in our society. So what can we do? We, we talked a little bit about policy. It's really hard to eradicate systemic racism the first step is to acknowledge the suffering, being honest and understanding what is going on in our society. We need to educate ourselves and we need to educate those around us, especially those who hold explicit racist views, but also those who are complacent. Complacency is just as bad. You don't want to stand up and be an ally only when it's convenient or only after a tragedy such as the murder of George Floyd. We need these issues to always be at the forefront of what we're doing. We must listen, we must learn, and we must act. The source of disparities in our system, as we talked about in the beginning, it's deeper and more systemic than explicit racial discrimination and is present in all facets of our society. And we simply cannot continue on like this. Thanks for leading this in-depth conversation. We know this episode was a little bit different. We hope you enjoyed it. It's very relevant and timely right now. And for people who have asked how to learn more about these issues, we'll provide our sources recommended readings and documentaries in our show notes and at the end of the episode. We thank you so much for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoyed this special episode of Women in Crime. Sources for today's episode includes the Bureau of Justice Statistics, the Federal Bureau of Investigations Uniform Crime Report, the Sentencing Project, the New York Times, the National Registry of Exonerations, and the Innocence Project. Some notable documentaries include 13th, and When They See Us, recommended readings includes White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria, and Other Conversations About Race by Beverly Daniel Tatum, White Rage by Carol Anderson, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness by Michelle Alexander, and Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Our music is composed by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, you can get access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. To find out more, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.